0: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. On today's program, flipping the switch on America's road trip.
1: Once you get into an electric vehicle, and it's smooth, and it's quiet, and it's fast, you don't want to actually go back into a gasoline vehicle. The future of the planet
0: depends on ending our fossil fuel addiction. And it is happening. Sales of electric vehicles are increasing, and self-driving cars are right around the corner. But making a successful transition to plug-ins means getting everybody on board.
2: This is not about finger-pointing. You know, the customer needs to be integrated, the regulator, the policymaker, the industry, and also the energy colleagues. Let it be utilities or let it be fossil. Power Shift,
0: the end of gasoline cars, up next on Climate One. (laughs) ¶¶ Is the age of the gas guzzler coming to an end? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. After more than a century of ruling the roads, oil is starting to lose its dominance over the auto industry. More and more automakers are introducing electric models, and according to one report, sales of electric cars will surpass those of regular cars within 25 years.
1: on
0: On today's program, we'll explore the future of the cars we love, the impact of robotic and electric vehicles. And the changing nature of how we get around town. Our guests represent the electric power industry, fossil fuel producers, and a leading automaker that has already made the leap into electric cars. Caroline Choi is senior vice president of regulatory affairs at Southern California Edison. Kathy Rehys Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association, and Andreas Klugescheid is head of external affairs for the BMW Group. Now, our conversation about the future of personal mobility. Here's Greg Dalton.
3: Kathy Reheis-Boyd, let's start with China. Fortune reported recently that China has a timetable for ending production and sale of cars running on fossil fuels in the next couple of decades. That could reshape the global auto industry. How do you think that's going to shake out?
4: Thank you, Greg, and thank you for uh, having us all here at the Commonwealth Club. So when we think about this issue as the oil and gas industry... We really want to. We really want to understand how um, these conversations impact some really important things, because I think it will drive sort of a shared vision that we have for for the sustainable energy future, if you might, in this kind of low carbon economy. And one of the things we we ask ourselves is, what is the type of energy mix that will give us the most affordable energy to the most people? What is the type of energy mix that will deliver the best um, air quality improvements or climate change um, reductions of greenhouse gases? What are the best energy mix that will really talk about the economic side of the equation for upward mobility of people who certainly work in our industry and many who um, engage, obviously, in the, in the issue of transportation fuels? And then lastly, how do those three things mix together together as we really plan for the future. How do they interact with one another? What is the right combination? Um, I was uh, speaking at the Verde Exchange, and one of the issues was natural gas. And the only comment I made relative to to your question, Greg, is, you know, we're in we're in each other's swim lanes now. Like I know Caroline, I know and- Andreas. We've we've interacted for many, many years. We in the past, we did transportation fuels. Edison did electricity. Autos kind of mixed with the two of us. How are we gonna have a car and a fuel that like works together? And so now we're all over each other's swim lanes. You know, I have companies who invest in electric charging stations. I have companies who are trying to make the cleanest biodiesel or renewable diesel or renewable natural gas. I have companies who are trying to make, you know, the best low carbon ethanol for liquid fuels. So it's just we use electricity, we produce electricity because we provide natural gas. We we we're all over each other's swim lanes. And I personally think that's exciting. I think that's going to deliver really the best answer to our shared vision of where we all go.
3: So there's, yeah, entrance, electricity coming into oil, oil and electricity mixing in ways they did in the past. But on China saying they want to end the age of gasoline cars, China is... You know, certainly rising in the global economy in terms of auto industry, manufacturing. And they have the ability to do things a little more simply and cleanly than the U.S. federal government does. So when China says they want to end the age of oil, what does that mean for oil companies?
4: Well, put it put it in context to 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 California's aggressive environmental leadership in this area. Certainly, uh, the state of California has made it very clear on what their goals are for electric vehicles and for the transition But when you step back and say, okay, what does that actually mean to all of us in sort of an inclusive conversation about this? We've got 26 million vehicles, internal combustion engines in the state of California. We have three hundred and forty thousand electric vehicles I could say last time I spoke here we had two hundred thousand electric vehicles so mm-hmm. electric vehicle penetration is increasing and that's you know that mix in that conversation is exciting but in the context of how long and to China making that statement when you put it in the context of like a place like California we're the third largest consumer of transportation fuels in the world as a state and the only two that are in front of us is China and the United States of America So the challenge of of what goes behind that statement from China is huge when you just bring it back and put it in the context of California and what what that's going to look like in the time and the transition, the
3: conversation about what that what that really means. Well, Andreas Klugashard with uh, BMW, when you look at China making a statement like that, also Britain, UK, uh, India uh, and France have done similar things. Do you say, oh, those are politicians making promises they won't be around to keep? Or does that make you sit up and think, oh, something's going on?
2: Well, in case of China, I'm not even sure if they are actually out there long enough to uh, see the fulfillment of whatever plans they have um, for the next decades to come. Because they tend to to stay a little bit longer, um, Chinese politicians. But anyway, um, you know, in car business being a global business, you cannot... Ignore, nor can you. Um, you just um, don't care about what politicians actually do and say. It is framing to a larger degree um, and ever larger degree our uh, products and with that our strategies. So, in other words, yes, we we are aware, obviously, of what the politicians say uh, and then what plans they have. But uh, for the time being, I share Keith's. Uh, view that the internal combustion engine and with that to some degree also the fossil fuel portion of uh, of the fuel equation is going to be out there for a long while and the question is how to uh, um, you know how to shape that transformation to um, a decarbonized transportation system um, uh, in parallel so you will have to do both and we do both actually you know we are uh, for example in europe the by far the market leader in, in selling electrified vehicles with BMW. Nobody is selling more electrified vehicles than we do. But on the other hand, uh, if you look into the numbers, we are probably selling around 2.5 million cars per year, roughly. And uh, you know, our next target for 2019 is to do around 140,000 electrics, uh, so that is still a smaller portion. Uh, by far actually a smaller portion uh, compared to to the internal combustion engine car and what we see is yes there are more cars coming to the road um, and it's actually uh, accelerating uh, rapidly when it comes to electric vehicles but um, there is still the task to make conventional cars more and more efficient and that also absorbs obviously money investments and energy
3: caroline Choi. uh We had on this stage the mayors of Houston and Miami who've suffered tremendous pain in their cities and talking about a faster transition away from fossil fuels because they're paying the very real price, tens of billions of dollars of storms that were amplified, not caused by. Um, And we all saw the devastation that Harvey and Irma caused. So I think you all agree on the direction. Let's talk about the pace, you know. Is this happening fast enough to decarbonize uh, the transportation sector? the scientists would say it's got to happen faster
1: yeah, I think that's true and I mean we certainly agree that it has to happen I mean we have very ambitious goals here in California right so the 2030 carbon goal to get there forty percent below 99 levels by 2030 the pathway that we put forward in October talks about seven million electric vehicles in California by that date so twelve 12 years to get to 7 million when we're at 340,000. So it's a very ambitious uh, climb to get to that number. The governor just put out 5 million you know, in his state of the state and do an executive order. So, and that only represents about 24% of passenger vehicles at that time, projected at that time. So still a lot of headroom in the internal combustion engine space, even with 7 million vehicles in California at that time. So a lot of room to go, but I think we have to get started, and there has to be more activity and momentum behind getting there. And and I think it is doable. We talked about just, you know, in the back room there about – about how quickly the internal combustion engine took over horse-drawn carriages. And so I think with more models coming, with affordability, uh, the pricing coming down to um, a degree that more people can get into those cars, more used vehicles um, in the marketplace for people to try them out and test, uh, awareness growing, and then the accessibility of charging uh, increasing with various programs, I think we'll see adoption uh, hopefully leaping forward.
3: Well, tell us about you went to, I think it was a car show or convention recently. You went around and you talked to different car makers, Caroline Choi and uh, General Motors was talking about having electric options for all their models by 2022. All the others were saying that by 2025, which is a curious time frame. So tell us about that experience about the different aggression you see on going electric.
1: Yeah, well, I think the timing was somewhat interesting only that and that the federal government is looking right now at the standards that it has in place for the model 2022 to 25 vehicles, the fleet and the emission standards that are appropriate for those vehicles and in time to give the automakers um, time to plan and design and build those cars. So it was just interesting that GM was on the early side of that time frame and all the other automakers seem to be on the later side of that time frame but I do think it's will be happening and what I do see is the acceleration of announcements by automakers to move into more electrified vehicles to either transition to have an electrified version of every passenger vehicle that they sell or significant portion of their offering to have an electrified version which I think is great
3: Andreas Klugechert, tell us about, uh, there's so much hype and excitement and a little bit of fear about uh, robotic, autonomous. We're not even (laughs) sure what labels uh, for these cars. Uh, Lots of acronyms out there. We see them daily here in San Francisco, Pittsburgh, other cities. What's the connection between robotic cars and electrification? Do they have to go hand in hand? What's the relationship? Well, you know, um, we
2: put what's... will happen in the next uh, few years in in an acronym that is called Aces uh, and that stands for autonomous connected electrified, and shared so these four elements um, will um, be uh, an integral uh, part of uh, what our um, uh, future products will uh, will encompass and When you think about autonomous driving, um, everybody assumes that this will be to a large degree electrified because you know when you think about um, the um, the potential of a very convenient mobility, then with that goes the necessity to to decarbonize that mobility to a larger degree. And, um, you know, what we also see to, uh, to some degree is a parallel development. Uh, the autonomous vehicle and the electric vehicle will, uh, you know, see uh, larger portions of market penetrations probably around the mid-20s. So 2025, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that. And uh, so uh, it's a no-brainer to some degree to think about these developments in
3: combination. Though a lot of the cars so far, uh, um, a lot of them, the pilots out there, are still running around on, on gasoline. Uh, Kathy Rehars boyd how do you see that, that the robots out there and the auto companies saying, well, there, it makes more sense to have them be electric for, for re- many reasons? How does that sit for you in terms of looking at the future demand for oil?
4: I'm still trying to get my mind around a car without a driver. But I would say, and, and I just want to mention too, on the on the liquid fuel side because as as andrea said we will have the internal combustion engine for quite some time and not to say that there's so much we can do on the liquid fuel side and i reflect back to where we've come you know in many conversations we've had greg where we we used to have lead in gasoline right we took that out we used to have i remember the days when epa launched the the ultra low sulfur diesel where you know we we went throughout the state and we held the hanky at the back end of the bus, to you know to show it that you know wow this is such a cleaner technology, so now we're in the space of what do you what do you do with liquid fuels to make them less carbon intensive, and on the diesel side there's a lot that can be done on biodiesel renewable, on the gasoline side it's a little tougher because many people. Um, probably I have a comprehension of what's known as the blend wall. You can only put 10% of ethanol into gasoline. So the type of ethanol, whether it's corn or sugarcane or what have you, is really important because you can't go above 10. So it's a harder nut to crack
3: as we're in this transition period of, of what does that look like. Well, let me ask you about that because there, there's a law in California called, in other states, the low carbon fuel standard, which says you've got to reduce the carbon intensity of fuels 10%. And figure out however you want to do it. And oil companies have have litigated against that law at a 10% reduction. Meanwhile, Andreas and BMW and other car makers have committed to 100% increase in the efficiency of the vehicles they make over a period of 15 years or so. So if auto companies can do 100, why is it so hard for oil to do 10?
4: And part of it, you know, and we're very supportive of the CAFE standards. I mean, as an industry, we understand efficiencies of cars are a very good thing for us. It's one of the most cost-effective things that can be done. Um, But on the gasoline side, it's a technology issue. So even though we've made strides on the gasoline side with ethanol, we all hoped that cellulosic ethanol would be the big breakthrough. Um, because it 's a lower carbon intensity nobody 's been able to quite crack that nut yet, and so it makes gasoline a little more challenging when you have this ten percent. Why is there a ten percent blend wall as as Andreas can talk about? If you go above that there 's some damage to the engine, so you can 't the, the relationship of of that in an engine you can 't really um, have any more than 10%. And so it's the type in the low carbon fuel standard to your question, Greg, it's the type of ethanol you put in there. So when you think about, well, why don't we just put sugarcane ethanol in all of it? Well, then it's...
3: That's what happens in Brazil. And let, yeah, right? But
4: the volume side is an interesting equation. Is there enough sugarcane ethanol to blend in every gallon of gasoline in the state of California when it's 2 million gallons of gasoline and diesel every hour of every day? That's a lot of ship transportation of corn based ethanol and em- emissions associated so, with ships.
3: Let's, let's ask Andreas. There's, I thought there was E85 that, you know, it's $100, cars can be retrofitted or changed, to the engines can run on high percentages of biofuels. Is that correct, Andreas? Well, you know, um,
2: the typical answer of a car manufacturer to that is it depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm uh, probably not. Uh, um, engineer enough to actually dig into the yeah. details of that conversation. But what I can tell you, and I think that is the important bit here, we need to think about a variety of solutions when it comes to that point. And Cathy uh, knows very well that uh, we at BMW are pretty supportive of the low carbon fuel standard uh, because we think it is necessary that you know all uh, stakeholders in that equation uh, do their bits in order to come to the ultimate goal of decarbonization. But uh, as, uh, as we come, manufacturers can actually vouch it to it. It's not only the uh, low carbon fuel standard; it's also about hydrogen as a fuel. That mm-hmm. again, then you know, hydrogen not being a fuel technically, but an energy carrier. So it depends on how you do that, right? It is about electricity, and again, here you know, the question of what is behind the the the, the plug really, you know, the upstream is a decisive question, and so on and so on, and um, you know. It means uh, that uh, car manufacturers currently are putting their money on several bets, you know, it's, it's a period of time that we witness right now where we actually have to uh, uh, distribute our investments to, to many, many technologies. And on the other hand, uh, the good news is really that many options are out there to actually contribute to that goal and we need to, to take whatever we can get in order to bring the carbon emissions down.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about making the switch
4: to electric cars. Coming up, what becomes of big oil? I think it's very important in any conversation about the energy mix that we are inclusive in that conversation. And I think we will be an important part of that conversation, not only in the past, but going forward.
0: continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the end of oil and the electrification of transportation. His guests are Andreas Kluge of BMW, Kathy Reheis-Boyd of the Western States Petroleum Association, and Caroline Choi of Southern California Edison. Here's Greg Dalton.
3: Caroline Choi, some people think that concern that uh, when they buy an electric car, depending on where they live in the world and in the United States, it runs on coal and coal is dirty. So, so tell us about the coal connection uh, in, in electric cars, because where you live matters a lot and how clean your, your electric car is going to be
1: it does it does matter um but it was interesting i just was um at bnef their mobility summit last week and they were talking about this exact subject and the analysis they've done shows that it doesn't matter even if it's coal power that you do still see an efficient a cleaner vehicle from a non-emission vehicle, because on the coal side, you have controls to try and minimize the emissions coming out of the coal fleet. In California, that's not as much of an issue. We don't have coal in our generation mix, and neither does PG&E and a number of other utilities, and coal is getting faded out of the California Um, generation mix. So I do think it does matter, as Andrea said, what is behind the plug and what is powering that electricity. Here in California, we already have a 50% renewable portfolio standard that I think we're going to easily achieve, and we do anticipate legislation that is going to increase that standard. So the grid is going to get increasingly cleaner and cleaner, and so we should leverage that grid that's ubiquitous everywhere for more um, aspects of the economy like vehicles. So plugging in should be fairly easy because the grid is there. We just have to add charging stations in more places so that people have that availability, whether they're in an apartment building or a condo or a home or a business, that those charging is available for people so they can feel comfortable uh, getting into an electric vehicle and not feeling like that they may be stranded without um, access to a plug. And, think,
4: and this, Greg, I think one of the other issues just to touch on is the role the consumer plays in all of this because as we're talking about what that right energy mix Um, One of the things I talked about in the beginning was the economic side of that equation, because the policies that we are adopting in California um, were, you know, certainly have an impact on the cost of of a gallon of gasoline or a gallon of diesel, Um, whether it's the, you know, the the infrastructure bill, um, which, you know, was 12 cents a gallon. Whether it's fuels under the cap and trade program, the Energy Commission's uh, estimate is about 10 cents a gallon. The low carbon fuel standards, another, I don't know, maybe five, five cents a gallon. So as these policies get adopted, we also have to keep in mind what impact does that have on communities and in, in some cases, disadvantaged communities where their proportional income is difficult to invest in transportation fuels. Um, meritorious as they are, the co- the
3: cost side has to be in that equation also. John Hoffmeister is a former uh, president of Shell Oil, and he had something surprising to say recently when he was at Climate One about fossil fuel reserves that are, that are on the books and reflected in the stock price of major oil companies.
2: I don't think they'll be burned. You know, there's it too much going the on. Share,
3: share price of some of those companies that are built. They'll be up. flat.
2: They'll be flat to down. Mm-hmm. But these companies won't go out of business. They'll, they'll, they'll change, they'll, they'll adapt. Measure, right. they'll, they're, they're, they're full of smart people. There are more PhDs, more scientists in these companies working on, even, even ExxonMobil, a formidable competitor of my former company, <laughs> is putting a half a billion dollars into biofuel, algae research.
3: While well, the time they were denying climate science, they were looking at ways they could benefit from a warming world by yeah. lo- looking into the Arctic Mm -hmm. slipped Slipped that in there Um, he he, he, he agreed you saw him Um, so there's the Exxon piece of that what Exxon knew but the first piece of that Kathy Reheis Boyd was that's the former head of a major oil company saying that the assets already on the books reflected in the stock price of major oil companies will not be burned their stock prices will be flat to down so when our
4: First, one of the things that that John said, and I know John well, um, one of the things that I really liked he said was the creativeness and the innovation of this industry. Um, I've been with the industry for close to 30 years now, and they are some of the most creative, innovative people I have ever seen. The amount of research by these companies going into not only their liquid fuel side, but the future of alternatives and, and renewables is huge. It's, it's actually more than the federal government or any other private entity. So they are thinking about the future and what that means to them as a company. And I can tell you as a trade association, they're very different. They all have different views of how they, of how yeah. they look at
3: that. You have many. Yeah, but they're also <laughs> trying to slow down that future with their <laughs> lobbyists in Washington and Sacramento.
4: Well, I mean, I think it's very important in any conversation about the energy mix that we are inclusive in that conversation. And I think we, are, we will be an important part of that conversation, not only in the past, but going forward. I mean, we were very supportive of the cap and trade extension. Um, we are very involved in those conversations. So there is a desire to look at a shared vision for our sustainable energy future together. And I'm I'm very proud that they're at the table in that conversation. And I think they want to be in and they've invested a lot of time and energy in it.
3: There's a lot of technology and talent in, in, in those companies. Uh, I think it's a question of how it's used. Um, And
1: I think, just to build on that, I think it's that transition to that clean energy economy, right? So planning for that, giving the companies the time to um, think about how they can stay within the energy business, but in a different way and train their employees to do different things than they have in the past. The utility industry has had to do that, moving away from coal to natural gas to renewables. And um, it's a, completely different um, mix of employees that you may need to run those types of facilities, giving them adequate time to train employees and have other employees that are going to retire. I mean, I think that's what we, as a state, have been able to do pretty effectively in setting long-term goals and then putting forward a path to try and achieve those.
3: Chief Scientist of the Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, uh, Amory Lovins, was here. He described how quickly things can change when it comes to transportation.
5: There are two pictures looking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. In 1900, you have to look really hard to find the first car. In 1913, you have to look even harder to find what might be the last horse, and it's not at all clear that there's any horse left in that picture. Thirteen years to go from first car to last horse. And, of course, the horse and buggy people thought they would have decades to adapt, You'd have to put in gas stations and traffic lights and all this infrastructure to replace their stables and such. But Henry Ford simply made the Model T 62% cheaper in 13 years, not quite the same period. Uh, and then it was all over when GM and DuPont invented something called car loans, which were used in three-quarters of the purchases that made uh, U.S. household car ownership go from 8 to 80% in 10 years.
3: That's uh, Amory Levins from the Rocky Mountain Institute. Andreas Klugashardt with BMW, smaller population, things, but things are moving very fast these days. What do you think about the potential for a really quick transformation, quicker than even big smart companies like BMW might anticipate? Well, you know, if you look, um,
2: if you look into the things that are happening right now, And you think about the pace of change that we're already realizing here, you know. So it took us um, three years uh, to sell the first 100,000 electric vehicles between 2013 and the end of 2016. Last year, we did another 100,000 within one year. And as I mentioned early on, 2018 we will see probably around 140,000 electric and electrified, that is, plug-in hybrids, also uh, vehicles uh, from BMW. So you see there is a, a, a an acceleration in that um, uh, a topic. But uh, the truth is also that you know it's not only about the car, the vehicle itself, but as you mentioned early on. It's uh, um, uh, the infrastructure side. And yes, uh, Amory Lovens was referring to the fact, and you were referring to the fact that also for cars, you know, the fitting stations, the traffic lights, and so on and so on. But, um, you know, you need to think, when you think about the electric vehicle, you need to also think about the availability of infrastructure. You need to think the customer perspective that Cathy also mentioned. And um, so there are, uh, this topic is a little bit more complex than just about what used to be the horse and then became the internal combustion engine car, now being the electric vehicle. So
3: Huge systems, 100 years. We've got a lot invested in these systems. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round, series of quick questions and quick answers for our guests, starting with association. I will mention a uh, person, place, or thing, and our guests will say the first thing that pops into their head uh, with unfiltered, ir- regardless <laughs> of what any <laughs> their mother yeah, or Warren's teacher uh, it, yeah. teacher might think of that. So um, first, with Andreas Klugeschard, what comes to mind when I say Tesla? Good to have them as competitor. <laughs> uh, Kathy Reheis Boyd, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline Choi, um, beautiful clean coal. No such thing. It was <laughs> from the uh, State of the <laughs> Union speech. Um, Kathy Reheis Boyd, California Governor Jerry Brown. Pragmatic. Andreas Klugerscheid, VW. <laughs> I can't hear your eyes on radio. <laughs> Did I say beep? Beep. <laughs> Caroline Choi, peak oil. Oh,
1: <sighs> when's it going to happen?
3: Uh, true or false. Uh, Kathy Reheisboard, boyd uh, burning fossil fuels is a major cause of climate disruption. Hmm. A contributor. True or false, Andreas Uh the notion of capturing carbon pollution from smokestacks and cramming it down a hole in the ground is totally bogus. <laughs> I would share that. (laughs) That's a yes. Uh, For Andreas Klugescheid, diesel cars produce less carbon pollution than gasoline cars. That's true. But they also produce more local pollutants that cause cancer. Not necessarily. Depends on the... um, on the diesel. Kathy Reheis-Boyd, when your husband was CEO of the California Air Board, he directed the country's largest air pollution control program run by a state. True. So that means that your marriage is an example of an industry capturing its regulator. Yeah.
4: LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> he actually captured my heart but you know we'll go. your,
3: oh good comeback her <laughs> husband's a great guy who did run the board in this state for a long time good comeback <laughs> um, that ends our lightning round let's give them a round for getting through the gauntlet
0: <laughs> you're listening to a climate one conversation about getting around without gasoline coming up the promise of self-driving cars.
2: Autonomous driving actually will, to a large degree, bring down the issue of casualties and traffic.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. listening to Climate One. We're talking about how technology is driving the movement towards cleaner cars and a healthier planet. Our guests are Catherine Reheis-Boyd of the Western States Petroleum Association, Andreas Klugescheid of BMW, and Caroline Choi of Southern California Edison. Here's Greg Dalton.
3: Let's talk about technology. Kathy, you've talked about some breakthrough potential. There's actually something that, you know, the possibility that sunlight could could combine uh, CO2 and water to make, uh, you know, hydrocarbon. So either that or other things. What are some big tech breakthroughs that that we can't solve this carbon equation without some big tech breakthroughs?
4: Yeah. And I think really recently, one of the things I'm very excited about because I'm very, uh, very look forward to unique partnerships on innovation. And um, we've used to work a lot with the national labs. We're blessed in this state with, with national labs. And this is, that's where these, this
3: innovation and, is coming this, out of.
4: And uh, this innovation has come. So then, uh, whether it's Lawrence Berkeley or Lawrence Livermore National Lab, in this case, Lawrence Livermore, reached out and started to talk about some new innovations that they're doing as a national lab to capture carbon and, and get it out of the atmosphere and then put it to some beneficial use. One of the very innovative things they talked about, which I don't know much about, and I will more this week, is imagine taking carbon out of the atmosphere and turning it into a hydrocarbon.
3: Methane or, yeah. Methane Methane or sure, ethy-
4: yeah. uh, ethylene or some other component. And that's, that was just something I had never even envisioned. But it's that kind of creative thinking that is going on not only in, in the automakers or the utilities or in our industry, but that place that academia can actually add so much innovation that they're working on that how can we collaborate on, on those types of things as we go forward.
3: Andreas Klugecheid, how about in in making cars? You know, the i3 has carbon fiber. Uh, Some people would say there's still a lot of room in the internal combustion engine, Henry, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, Where are the big innovations, the technical breakthroughs that can get to a new auto industry?
2: Well, as I mentioned before, we are witnessing that right now here, you know, when you, you know, I was in, in California in 2008, uh, sitting in, an, uh, in a BMW facility in Oxnard, where a guy came around and said, You know, I have this uh, lithium ion battery and I think it could work well in a vehicle that is 10 years ago. You know, 10 years is 10 years. But uh, as I mentioned before, we are doing now 140,000 uh, of these cars. Uh, per year and uh, obviously numbers rising. So there is a drastical change in the industry happening and with that in the attached industries, if you like, uh, with the uh, utilities and the um, fossil fuel producers. You know, it has uh, big repercussions. And it means also that this transformation is uh, in need to be managed. And that refers to the skills of our associates. That means that the infrastructure needs to grow and come up. That means that the customer needs to understand better what potential these technologies have. You know, one of the big issues, actually, to to make the customer more aware, part uh, of our obligations, but also part of everybody's obligations here, uh, that, uh, you know, electric vehicles are real alternative, Right for their
3: driving needs. And some people would say that the dirt, one little dirty secret of the auto industry is that companies make more money on after-sales, uh, service, et cetera, than actually the margins are quite thin on the selling the car. It's, you know, it's the razor and razor blades. You, know, you keep coming back. And that companies don't make as much money, Andreas Kluge Scheid, on electric cars. So the dealers don't like to sell them, promote them, because you're not going to come back for an oil change or transmission or spark plugs or all those things that get you go back. Is that true? Well, first of all, I'm happy to
2: report um, that a very well-known US NGO did some mystery shopping, and BMW turned out to be one of the uh, few companies, actually, who made a very good impression in that respect, you know, willingness of dealers to actually sell electric vehicles, you know, consulting their customers and so on and so on. And uh, I can support uh, your statement that for the time being, We are actually having very low margins in specifically selling electric vehicles because the technology is still very expensive. But, uh, you know, there is no way around it. And uh, I can also assure you that BMW has clearly understood that the future of automobiles is going to be electric. There's no question about it.
3: You know, every electric car means that people are not filling up at at the gasoline station. Caroline Choi, are oil companies trying to slow down you taking some of their revenue? (laughs)
1: i <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is not a significant portion of the revenue to date. We hope to take more and more of it. And uh, so I said we're in each other's <laughs> swim
4: lanes. Yeah,
1: yeah. They're energy companies and we are an electricity company. I think we are working together right now to advance where the state wants to head. But I you know, over time I do we hope that electricity does become the dominant fuel of vehicles and other parts of the economy. We want we want more electricity use in buildings and space and water heating. Again, because we're gonna have so much renewable, clean electricity powering the the grid, that you should plug into the grid for so many aspects of your lives um, to take advantage of that. And so as long as we can maintain the affordability of electricity, which is going to be critical, Kathy is right, that energy is an important component of all of our customers' lives, and it's really important that it stay affordable. A third of our customers are on an income qualified rate. It's very important that the price of electricity stays at a point where they don't have to make choices that are very difficult for them. But we do see that a cleaner and cleaner grid, the way that, California's headed is a great opportunity for customers and for Californians.
4: And I mean, that's why Greg, when when we were talking in in the earlier session, the cost piece of that to to what Caroline is saying is is an important piece of this conversation because we do have the highest electricity rates uh, in California is very high. And so as we look at that transition going forward or that energy mix going forward, the cost side is really important. And when you when you sort of peel the onion a little bit and you start looking at some of the projections from the Energy Information Administration, which is a federal entity of the Department of Energy, they look out into the future and they, they give us projections of what they see energy. And they're still projecting in 2040, 80% of energy will come from coal, gas, and oil. So, when we talk about this time frame, it's really important to put that into perspective of, you know, how do we come together on, a, on an inclusive shared conversation with that kind of a, of, a, of a statistic out there, given the infrastructure that we have and the changes that have to be made and the cost that's associated with it and the, what the consumers bear. So it is, as Andrea said, it's a complex conversation that it's great that all of us are in.
1: Well, that's, and while we have some of the highest electricity rates in the country, we have some of the lowest bills because we do – live in a place that doesn't need a lot of energy. Fortunately, we have a lot of places that don't have air conditioning and don't use our heating as the coastal communities. We do have more people moving inland, and so that is a concern is how do we keep it affordable and have programs that make it affordable, including energy efficiency, to try and minimize the use of electricity and make those homes and buildings as efficient as possible so they can minimize their electricity usage. I do think that transition is important, but California has shown that it is possible to move away from fossil fuels you see it very aggressively in the policy-making space and in the implementation of these policies at the state level. And so if California can show it can be done, the sixth largest economy in the world, it can be done elsewhere too. It has to be done in a thoughtful way, in a way that does allow for that transition to take place. So it's not as disruptive as it could be to the state's economies, but it is possible to do it. And I think it can be done faster than what EIA is, is pr- reporting.
3: We're talking about the future of mobility at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Caroline Choi with Edison International, Kathy Reheis-Boyd with the Western States Petroleum Association, and Andreas Klugescheid with BMW. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
6: Okay. Um, I want to ask you about the agony and the ecstasy, which are two possible futures that might come about through, through this. And, and the agony is that I send my Beamer out to go get pizza in the evening, and it goes out you know, autonomously, collects the pizza, comes back. And when I want to go to work, um, I sit in the back of my BMW for two hours working my presentation while my car drives me to work. And it takes two hours because there's like twice as many cars on the road, but nobody cares how long it takes, right? And when I get back home, we plug in my Beamer right at, at uh, 5 o'clock when the that sun time. is going down and the emissions are going up. And the ecstasy is kind of the opposite, is that you have everything shared and the uh, cars charge uh, according to your um, power forward algorithm. So when it's uh, the least greenhouse gases and stuff like that, you get the picture. So what do you think the probabilities are of this agony thing and the ecstasy thing? And what can we do to (laughs) shift the needle so it's more on the Ecstatic side. (laughs) I don't know. I I would put the the pizza fetching in the (laughs) ecstasy Ah, part. That's uh, pretty good to me. um,
2: um, Bad pizza. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'd like to take ecstasy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) With uh, all the connotations that it has. But anyway, um, (laughs) you know, there's truth in both scenarios to some degree. Uh, One is... And that is a promise to our customers that there will never be a BMW without a steering wheel, okay? So, there's always going to be the option for you to drive uh, your Beamer. Uh, But that aside, um, there's certainly the, uh, you know, there might be a future when when your car actually does uh, the pizza trip. Uh, I'm sure that uh, city regulators and many other people will have issues with that, you know, because it means more vehicle miles traveled, uh, um, more congestion, more you know, space that you need, and so on and so on. So that is not a political option, and uh, it, it is really upon us here, uh, also working together with universities like UC Davis and others, um, to figure out how that uh, revolution uh, is, is going to be uh, managed in a way so that it is uh, um, you know, somewhat bearable and acceptable. The potentials that are out there are, Autonomous driving actually will, to a large degree, maybe down to zero, um, uh, bring down the issue of casualties in traffic.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> now, now, when I, you know, the last time I admit that is two or three years ago, I found for the US like 30,000 plus casualties every year, death people uh, in, in traffic. In Germany, it's around two and a half to 3,000, so it's, it's way lower. You know, We have only a fourth of your population, but uh, still... Uh, Every single one is obviously one too many, one too much. And hence, that is one of the big promises of autonomous driving that is uh, you know, on the plus side. And uh, the charging uh, scenario that you described is actually happening already today. I mentioned earlier on the managed charging that really resulting in you can charge when the um, the energy prices are the lowest, you can charge when the carbon footprint of your electricity is the lowest, You can charge whenever you need your car. So um, more on the ecstatic side, but uh, bear in mind that autonomous driving, first and foremost, is really about saving human lives.
6: Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Global oil prices are notoriously difficult to predict. And in fact, just a few years ago, prognosticators who thought we were entering the era of high global oil prices have shown to be very wrong. However, between... OPEC dysfunction, Saudi political ambitions, and US fracking coming online at about fifty-five to sixty-five dollars a barrel. Arguably we're entering an era of low global oil prices. Any any commentary on what the global oil price regime might mean for electric vehicle penetration?
3: Caroline Choi, when when oil prices go down, people go back to their SUVs that they love.
1: They do. It's unfortunate. Um, I do think it takes a lot of effort to get people to switch to an electric vehicle. Uh, One of the things that the state has done most recently is create a new nonprofit called Velos. You have a number of automakers, utilities, and other companies who are contributing to that to have a statewide marketing education campaign for people to be aware of the fact that there are these electric vehicles. And once you get into an electric vehicle, I, I mean, how many people have an electric vehicle? I mean, once you get into an electric vehicle and it's smooth and it's quiet and it's fast, I mean, you don't want to actually go back into a gasoline vehicle. So it's just getting that awareness, getting people into those cars, ride and drive, those kinds of experiences to have people make that switch. Um, But when gas prices are low, it is very difficult. And if there aren't enough options for people who like their SUVs, who need a big car, who have families, who are... Uh, you know trucking stuff around you you've got to have the models available for those people to switch into the kinds of cars that they currently drive and that meets their needs those models are coming um, I was at the LA Auto Show uh, last year and uh, every year you see more vehicles more model types coming out by automakers to meet the demands of customers because they do see that the future is electric and they're bringing models that have electrification as part of their or part of their fleets.
3: Let's go to our last question. Welcome. So
0: I'm going to go back to the first speaker who talked about the agony and the ecstasy. And the ecstasy seems to be this discussion of the transformation and California's lead on that transformation away from fossil fuels. But the agony for me, has been one of the things in the news lately that Donald Trump has opened up offshore oil drilling. And um, that seems to be quite a contradiction. I would suggest that if the petroleum industry did not drill in the offshore or openings of that, it would be irrelevant. I'm wondering if you can respond to what the lobbyists in regards to the um, petroleum industry
4: have have been involved with and what your position is on that offshore oil drilling. You know, thank you for the question and and I would say for California because I and really the Pacific West, you know, Oregon, Washington, California, we're probably under the I think everyone knows the most stringent environmental regulations probably in the world. And the only thing I'd ask you in that question to think about is when we have to supply um, the amount of transportation fuels every day that it, it, that requires people to move from A to B and, and heat and cool their homes or turn their lights on, that it takes crude oil to do that and to turn it into those valuable products. It has to come from somewhere to make 38 million 39 million people in california able to move tomorrow or move goods and services out of the ports that still has to happen and if it's not going to be offshore and it's not going to be in our own backyard and it's not going to be crewed by rail it means we're going to transport it in on marine tankers from parts of the world that um don't particularly appreciate our desire to be
3: energy independent we have to wrap it up i'm going to ask each guest you know uh, your vision or hope for the future. What gives you hope, Andreas, so that we're going to meet this mathematical challenge to make this major transformation in time before there's more Houstons and Miami's?
2: Well, you know, what gives me uh, hope uh, and to some degree also ecstasy is uh, is really <laughs> that um, there's so much potential in there, you know, and I stick to that uh, idea of convergence of the energy transition and the transport system transition. This is really where the fun starts, where there are new business cases. And new business cases mean uh, that, you know, we will have a... A uh, rapid uh, development in the right direction, but we need to do it together. That is super important. This is not about finger pointing. You know, the customer needs to be integrated, the regulator, the policy maker, the industry, and also the energy colleagues. Let it be utilities or let it be fossil.
3: Caroline Shaw, your pep ending for how we're going to get it done.
1: You know, I think this transformation is already underway and innovation that's coming, that's out there and that's coming is really fantastic. And so I'm not worried about that we can't do it. It's just a matter of getting more people to know about the options and adopt those vehicles. So in the financial innovation that's happening, the technological innovation that's happening both at private companies, as well as in academia and in the industry. It's really fascinating. I do agree with Andreas, it's working together, because the policies really have to come together and be integrated, both at the state and local level, and at the federal level, if possible. But California can do it on its own in many, many ways, and it's doing that, it's demonstrating that. And so it's just getting out there, all you people with electric vehicles, and preaching to the choir of getting more people in those vehicles, because it's really, it's a tremendous opportunity. I don't think we should let it go by.
3: So, Kathy Boyd, tell us how we're going to get it done and how your members are going to to make tons of money on clean energy.
4: (laughs) I, I really think it's it's a transition of our mindset, because I do believe that if we answer those core questions together, we will get to the right shared energy future. And that is affordable, reliable energy to the most people possible. It is making sure we make meet our environmental goals, whether they're air quality or climate change. Um, And it is the economic side of that equation. So there's upward mobility for communities and people that rely on this energy mix. And then in the end that we've all talked together about how are we going to balance those so we can go forward. So I think it's it's a transition of all of our mindsets together. You've been listening to a
0: Climate One conversation on the future of the automobile with Greg Dalton. Greg's guests were Caroline Choi, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Southern California Edison, Kathy Reheis-Boyd, President of the Western States Petroleum Association, and Andreas Klugescheid, Head of External Affairs for the BMW Group. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.
3: Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.